I did not understand wrestling. I had no idea about it. I had no experience of it. I didn't. So I was completely novice in that world and mm. I had to be educated and it's it was surprisingly complicated to get my head around. It's a bit like sort of trying to catch up on 30 or 40 years of EastEnders, you know, in an <laughs> afternoon. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we'll be speaking to an incredible screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. This week, we're joined by the fantastic Stephen Merchant. In 2001, Stephen wrote his name into British TV history with The Office. His and Ricky Gervais' acclaimed workplace mockumentary regarded today as one of the most influential sitcoms of all time. Since then, Stephen has juggled work on both sides of the camera, writing, directing, and starring in a string of acclaimed comedies, from extras to his very own HBO show, Hello Ladies. Last year, Stephen enjoyed one of his biggest successes yet, Fighting With My Family, his big screen adventure telling the real life story of a girl from Norwich with dreams of becoming a professional wrestler was co-produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Its unusual mix of in-the-ring action, heartfelt drama, and outrageous comedy saw it championed by critics and audiences alike. Here's what Stephen had to say about the story threads he abandoned, the terrible name the film almost had, and the joy of burying exposition in extremely inappropriate jokes. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kemal Demek. Over to Stephen. Stephen Merchant, thanks for joining us. Over the last few months of lockdown, um, as people have been seeking out movies to distract them from the horrors of the real world, Fighting With My Family has turned up on quite a few lists of feel-good films. I wanted to start by asking what your relationship is with that phrase, feel-good film, and if that is what you set out to make. I, um, well, firstly, I'm very pleased that it's made it onto a lot of feel-good lists and that it's only taken a uh, international, global, you know, uh, health crisis to really make the film connect with people. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I no, I did want it to be feel-good, and I, my ambition was in all seriousness, to reduce grown men to tears. I, I've always liked that idea as an ambition. I like the I picture a kind of very hard bloke, sort of guy who doesn't mind getting into a ruck in a pub on a Saturday night, who's kind of brought to tears by this film. That, in all seriousness, was a sort of kind of guiding light for me. And um, partly because that's something I like in films myself. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sentimental, I think, in some ways, and I like films that kind of move me emotionally. Uh, mm. I remember years ago, I was I did film reviewing when I was still in my uh, early 20s, and I was sent to see The Bridges of Madison County with uh, uh, Meryl Streep and, and um, Clint Eastwood, which, you know, for a yeah. young man in his early 20s, about sort of two middle-aged people having a kind of, you know, summer romance wasn't the obvious fit. <laughs> I remember being in kind of very moist of eye at the end of the film and all the other kind of hardened critics, letting them leave the cinema before I, um, before I left because I was... I was embarrassed and I was, I must, I'm just going to, I'm just going to watch all the credits guys. I'll meet you in the bar. I just need to check who the best boy is. Um, and so that, the, the idea that a film could affect you in that way, I've always found very appealing. And this story, this true life story seemed to have elements of that. Hmm. That was certainly one of my ambitions. It's probably worth noting at this point that your film is the only film on these feel good movie lists to include lines like bowling ball in the bollocks. Padding, Paddington had very few bowling balls in the bollocks, as far as I can recall. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. It's sort of trying to make a film that... Um, I mean, it's quite funny. How, a number of times I've seen comments 
you know, either people have tweeted me or or I've heard it from friends where they say, um, you know, they they said I I was not expecting to be in tears by the end of this, in, in a sort of in a kind of dismissive way, like like clearly that wasn't my intention, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of that, that that somehow that just happened by accident, you know, and it's like and 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 it's funny as well that sometimes that's used against you, you know, uh, as though sort of to 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 affect someone emotionally is is an easy thing to do or is not premeditated, you know, it's yeah. very hard obviously, as you know, to take people on an emotional journey to the point that they've invested enough that they could get kind of emotional by the end. And that's, you know, and it's hard to do, I think, in a sort of, in a world in which we kind of are much more cine literate and we sort of know the tricks and we are suspicious when we feel our buttons being pressed. Mm. Um, So those are the sort of obstacles you're trying to overcome. Yeah. And that's interesting, the idea of expectation, because I remember I used to work in, um, I'm dating myself here, I used to work in a blockbuster video and we used to get in films from WWE studios that were The Marine and The Commando and uh, See No Evil, which I think had the tagline, this summer, evil gets raw. Um, <laughs> so these, you know, the expectation from films by this studio are not, you're not expecting to be made to cry. You're not expendi- expecting the tenderness that this film did have. Was it, you know, how did you go about kind of broaching the idea of telling a different type of story well i think there's this misapprehension that this is that the word i'm looking for or misconception that this film originated with wwe or that i was somehow approached by them or that this was like a kind of promotional piece for the wwe that was not how the film came about it came about because it was a documentary made by channel four without any involvement with the WWE, a documentary that was seen subsequently by um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, he was filming Fast and Furious, whatever, in London. Uh, couldn't mm-hmm. sleep, was watching Late Night Channel 4, uh, as you do. You know, he never misses grand designs. And, um, <laughs> and this came on afterwards, and he was watching it. And um, he, as a former wrestler, related to the story. And through various kind of sort of mutual friends, uh, and also, you know, have, having worked with him before, it made its way to me and and that was where it originated the wwe only became involved later because we needed permission by from them to use elements of the story which they're quite proprietary and they own certain parts of the main character pages sort of life story if you like yeah. uh, and so we had to involve them in order to get access otherwise we'd have had to have created a sort of fictional wrestling outfit you know how sometimes you see there's like they can't use the nfl so it's like the you know it's the american football league and um so we were quite keen to kind of keep those elements of authenticity and so they ended up becoming involved and putting some money into it because they sort of they liked the idea but so but i never had any remit from them i never had any interference from them in terms of what i could say or what i couldn't say so um, so it really, it, what grabbed me was that it was a story about a family and, and a British family and this working class girl and this, this success story that I sort of hadn't heard of. And I was a little ashamed in a way that I'd never heard of this kind of working class Norwich girl who'd gone from sort of nothing to, to the, the big leagues of wrestling. And I just thought that, I don't know, it just, it just seemed to have a lot of elements that were unlikely and that kind of gave it 
some sort of, I don't know, some sort of u- uniqueness. I forget entirely what your question was, but I think <laughs> that is some way to answering it. You mentioned Paige's story there, and it kind of struck me that it's almost like like a classic hero's journey arc. So like Luke Skywalker, she's from this kind of nowhere place that's not supposed to breed heroes, but she gets picked for this incredible destiny like Luke, undergoes training like Luke. And um, <laughs> I mean... The Rock and Yoda as mentor characters are a little bit different in size, but you get my point. And uh, yeah, then she kind of hits this brick wall and reaching her destiny, she learns to kind of embrace herself instead of being this person she thinks she's supposed to be. And then she kind of achieves achieves her dream. Was that all in Paige's real life story? Or did you have to embellish much or change much to kind of make her real life rise to wrestling fame satisfying for movie audiences? Well, in the documentary that originally aired, uh, the the movie is about this, you know, this close-knit wrestling family. Brother and sister are both dreaming of big leagues in the WWE, which for people who don't understand wrestling is, you know, is as big as it gets. It's it's Hollywood, you know, it's Broadway for, for wrestlers. And um, they both competed to try and get into WWE, only she made it. And the documentary ends with her kind of going off to America and having sort of early, uh, early kind of experiences in America. And that's where it ends. And that, was satisfying as a documentary, but it didn't quite have enough of an arc, it seemed to me, for a film. And so I met with the family and I spoke with Paige herself and and I did not understand wrestling. I had no idea about it. I had no experience of it. I didn't, so I was completely novice in that world and mm. I had to be educated and it's it was surprisingly complicated to get my head around. It's a bit like sort of trying to catch up on 30 or 40 years of EastEnders, you know, in an afternoon, you know, it is a lot of machinations. There's a lot of stories within stories. And that was what was confusing. But, uh, but she told me, oh, and, you know, and, and the night that I won the, um, the, 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 the Divas title, I, I, you know, I was in tears and, and I said, well, what's the Divas title and explain that to me. And she said, oh, well, it's the, you know, it's the sort of title you win the, you win. The, and I was like, is that what's that like, like the heavyweight championship of the world? And she said, yes. And, and she told me that, that it was such an emotional journey getting to that point that even though when she won, as it were, the wrestling heavyweight title of the world, it was fake or phony or whatever you want to call it or predetermined, mm-hmm. even though that was sort of in itself artificial, the emotion of winning was as real as if she had actually won the heavyweight title because she'd been through so much to get there. And that was what seemed the kind of payoff for the movie to me. It was like, Oh yes, this is a rocky story, and even though it's a sort of artificial sport, the emotions that the family and she experienced getting there are as real as in a real sport, if that makes sense. And mm. that was the moment in which I realised there was a sort of satisfying conclusion, at least for the film, that it did have that that hero's journey, as you said, because she had overcome a lot of obstacles. She had almost quit. She'd almost given up. You know, she was away from home. She was young. She she was bullied or she felt she was bullied and all these other things. And so it felt, and then she kind of finally had her victory and, and on, on her first appearance on the main roster, as they say, she won the title. So it felt like there was a a sort of a, a ready built Rocky story in there mm. that's quite rare to find. I think normally you do have to massage the truth to find that. And I think there are obviously other versions of the story you could tell because since we made the movie you know her life has has taken other routes and there's a number of versions of this story you could tell but but there is also this kind of rocky version which is the one that i went for Mm. 
And yeah, it's, it's actually really clear, in, even in this first draft, that you've gone quite quickly from a point of not knowing anything about wrestling, as, as you say, to being completely immersed in it. I mean, the, the all the terminology is in there. And when you're directing the kind of, when you're like describing the action scenes, it's not just like they wrestle. You've, you, know, you have all the names of the moves and all this kind of thing. You obviously kind of really steeped yourself in the sport and the culture around it. Like, how did you go about that? What was the process of learning about wrestling? Well, I spent a lot of time with the real life family and I spent long hours on the phone with Paige herself and I taped all those calls uh, with her permission. And it's, <laughs> and I kind of, you know, and I would refer back to them and I would, um, and then I went to WrestleMania with Dwayne and I watched uh, WrestleMania and I sat in the audience and then I also met with the wrestlers backstage and I met with Dwayne and I sat with Dwayne and he told me a lot about how it works and I just sort of did my research really and and you know and occasionally I would have to call someone and go I'm so confused by there's this thing called the receipt what does that mean you know and it's this idea that you punish someone for kind of stepping out of line by giving them a real slap as opposed to a fake slap and all these sort of these things and and Initially, it was quite hard because I think the wrestling community is quite protective of its secrets. It's a bit like the magic circle. They don't, they're sort of mistrustful of you. But if so, but once I'd sort of persuaded them I was taking this seriously, they sort of trusted me. And so I, and also I had a, a, a kind of writer's assistant who was also more of a fan of wrestling and knew more about it already. So he, he uh, also knew a lot of the terms and he could help me with that. So yeah, it was just a process of, um, of research really and what's what was incredibly difficult and and i'm you know i did various kind of aborted first drafts you know which didn't kind of didn't lead anywhere because there was so much information Mm -hmm. that it seemed you needed to convey to the non-wrestling audience in order for it to make sense um and I kept thinking, like, would my mum understand this? Because I had struggled so much to understand it that I, I so for instance, um, there's this whole confusion of kind of what is real and what isn't real, right? And so yeah. when you when you when you when you're writing a, a boxing movie, everyone understands that the rules of boxing essentially, and they understand that if Rocky knocks out Apollo Creed and he falls to the mat, and he, and the ten count happens, he's won, and they understand that rule. And that's all that Rocky needs to do, in a sense, to win. Um, whereas in wrestling, the success you have as a wrestler is as much about being a performer and entertaining the crowd as it is winning the title. And so you have this whole showbiz side of it, along with the kind of winning and losing. And so I realized I had to explain that to the audience. They call it going over with the crowd. Yeah. Have you, have you been, as the crowd won you over? And so you've got to sort of explain that for instance, and, and there's all these, a, a number of elements like that, that you have to explain in order to make Paige's victory a victory, because obviously the sport itself is not really real. So you, and so, <laughs> so it becomes really complicated because you've got to sort of, I kept referring it as, as underwiring. Like you have to do all mm. this sort of underwiring in the, of, in the script to just explain to an audience that doesn't follow wrestling, what is important and what the rules are and what you and what you need to understand i mean it just is incredibly complicated and so i think on the surface the film looks quite straightforward and it has the clean hero's journey but sort of filtered into all of that is all of this info that you need in order to sort of enjoy the 
the payoff at the end. Yeah, and you bury that exposition and that explanation in, I mean, in these hilarious scenes, there is one wonderful scene that I never really realised what the story function of it was until I kind of sat down with this first draft. But there's this wonderful scene where, um, like, the, the family, Rhea and Zach's parents have the parents of Courtney, Zach's girlfriend, over to dinner. And it's a hilarious scene, but also it's a chance for you to bring into the script these characters who are outsiders to the sport who actively say, but it, but it's fake, right? And that's beneath all the jokes. You don't, you almost don't realize you're also being fed the explanation of, yes, it's fake, but the stakes are real. Is that kind of tricky to write and to do it in, an, to deliver that information, but do it in an entertaining way? Well, that scene of the dinner scene originated from a real story that the real family told me about when they oh, met really? Zach's parents for real. So they, they did a version of that did happen, and there was a sort of weird meeting of minds. Um, and so I always thought that was going to be a funny scene anyway, just because it's 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 you know it's uh, the family themselves are so extreme that it it, it seemed a good way of kind of um, I don't know it, both it was funny but also it was like you say it was a way of bringing the non wrestling viewer into this environment and kind of asking the questions that I had been asking in my research. So that was always the intention of it, but. I suspect in that first draft you read, there was probably a lot more exposition than we actually put in the finished film because I think um, I probably had them trying to cover all kinds of bases to answer mm. all kinds of questions. You know. And in the end, the chief function in the, in the movie, like you say, was both to explain that it's kind of, um, that it's the, the levels of fakery, but also how much the family loved the sport and also the dream, the family dream is to, is to wind up in the WWE and, and what that represents. And so by them kind of selling that idea to the, to the in-laws, I think hopefully you, ex, you explain to the audience the, the, what this dream is and why it's so important to the family. Because that was another big concern of mine was throughout the movie, Paige is constantly questioning whether she wants this, whether she wants to be a wrestler, whether she wants to be in America. And it, it was sort of important somehow that you understood that this dream was real and that it wasn't just silly and frivolous and that, that, that this was sort of a life goal for the family mm. and for her. And to, to try and explain that passion, that was another way of, of sort of expressing that by using that family scene to kind of, to, to, to have them evangelize about wrestling. This is a, more of a kind of directorial touch of yours than a screenwriting one, but I, I love the small detail in that scene where Courtney's mum is lifting a spring roll to her mouth, just as Julia says, you should see his cock. <laughs> That's right, yes. Well, we did variations of that. We did kind of lots of outtakes with, with Julia Davis, who's playing that kind of slurping on a noodle or various <laughs> various att attempts at that. I mean, that scene in... in in its unedited version goes on for ages. And it's, you know, it was like a 10 minute scene in the cutting room because we'd all been improvising and, you know, and obviously as always with films, you have to kind of pair it back to the, the, the essentials. Yeah. Yeah. But that was a good example, like you say, of, of trying to bury exposition. And, and it's, like I say, it's very hard. It was very hard in this film. There's ep exposition constantly that you have to lay out. So the rock has to show up and explain this idea of going over with the audience and Vince Vaughn has to explain what's needed of you, the stamina, the athleticism, you know, and the family needs to explain to you that it's it's not all fake. And, and so you're just constantly de dishing out this information mm. uh, in order to make the kind of second half of the film uh, make sense, I guess, again, to the non-wrestling audience. Yeah, to Mrs. Merchant. 
to Mrs. Merchant. <laughs> Shout out Mrs. Merchant. <laughs> so to, to dive into kind of like the first draft in, in a bit of detail, the first few pages are pretty much the same, but I kind of wanted to talk about them because they accomplish so much so quickly. So we start off with young Zach and Rhea watching wrestling. He loves it. She's bored by it and wants to change the channel. They start fighting. The dad, Ricky, comes in. We fully expect him to do the sensible parent, uh, parental thing and kind of break them up. He says, Zach, what the fuck are you doing? Zach looks up. Ricky continues. If you're going to choke her, your arm should be here. And instantly we, we get the dynamic. It's this mad wrestling family in which Rhea is kind of the reluctant one. Can you tell me a little bit about writing this intro scene and, and what it needed to achieve? Well, again, one of the difficulties was that the family and Paige had shared so many funny stories of their <laughs> life as wrestlers. I had so many, I mean, just when he first met his wife and how the family sort of tried to screw with him and they put deep heat in his underwear and he was going on a date with her after a wrestling match and he put on his underwear and had deep heat and his groin started to burn when he was on the date. I mean, there were scenes of them having fights with, you know, frozen baguettes in supermarkets and I mean, just so much stuff. And, and, um, they, I remember Paige told me a story of like, you know, she was outside the house once and she got into a, she got hit by a car and she was on the floor and her dad came running out and went, uh, all right, can you bend your legs? And she went, yeah. And he went, you, any double vision? And she said, no. And he goes, great. Cause you got a match in half an hour. And, <laughs> and so it was, there was this feeling of just this kind of traveling circus family um, where kind of, you know, just, pratfalls and and injuries were just sort of part of the part of growing up and so it's trying to capture a bit of that flavor mm. right off the bat and tell you that this is a sort of loving family but an unorthodox one but also that which was true that that she had been reluctant to be a wrestler and had sort of been uh and be persuaded by her brother and her family to get in the ring for the first time because someone had bailed and they needed somebody. Mm. And she had wrestled with her brother who wore a pink Power Rangers outfit to kind of, to reassure her because he obviously was supposed to be a female wrestling match. So yeah. He had to disguise himself. And, um, and she got in the ring on that first occasion and she'd learned some moves and she was just the, the cheer of the crowd and the thrill of it just won her over to wrestling and, and evangelized her to it. And I guess that was what I was trying to, kind of capturing those first few scenes, like explain the family, explain it's a family business, but also see her love of this sport. Let her let sort of, I guess, experience it with her. Mm. Because again, assuming you don't like wrestling as a viewer, and that was always my assumption that, you know, the wrestling fans would already be on board, but what if you're not a wrestling fan like me? How could you see someone, how could you explain what this means to this girl and why she's passionate and why she's willing to go through all these hurdles. Mm. And it's because you sort of see her come alive and experience being in the ring for the first time. And so that was a sort of attempt to lead the audience by the hand a little bit and to say, look, maybe you're not a fan of wrestling, but neither was she, you mm. know, and, and mm. sort of, and take you in that way. Um, and actually it's funny. I, I, as we started shooting, I got nervous about that. I was suddenly worried. I was thinking, well, if she didn't like wrestling, will people think that she want, I guess I was concerned that when she gets to her final big match, do you think that she's doing it for herself or do you assume she's only doing it for her family? Right. And I was worried that if somehow you didn't believe she wanted this, that it wasn't going to be a victory. She was sort of doing it begrudgingly somehow. And I was suddenly panicked that, that, that opening scene confused that, that maybe it was better if you just started and she was already a fan of wrestling. So you knew this was her dream from the beginning. 
Because mm. it's not like you see Rocky kind of umming and ahhing about boxing <laughs> and then he becomes a boxer, right? He's a boxer from the off. Yeah, Ro Rocky didn't start the film wanting to watch Charmed instead. instead. That's right, exactly. And so I suddenly panicked that, that that was the wrong way to start the film and we were already shooting it and I was kind of trying to rewrite it. And I remember it was Vince Vaughn who said, no, you this this is a great opening and it takes people in and, and you should stick with it and don't, don't second guess yourself. And I think mm. he was right. Yeah. And that's interesting. So when you kind of had those dilemmas, did you kind of decide in the end to kind of go with authenticity and to verge on that side? Because it, one thing, another thing that's not present in this first draft, but does appear in the film is, is the, the brother. So not Zach, but another brother who's in prison for attacking someone with a slab of tarmac, I think it is. So he's not in this first draft. And I wondered sort of whether you kind of like, yeah, what, what you kind of wrestled wrestled with no pun intended yeah so what what it was that kind of made you decide actually this is a real life thing he needs to have a presence in the film well there's a there was a couple of things with the brother i think initially it was uh, there's always that anxiety of too many characters yeah and it being confusing for an audience to track and and often the kind of criticism of biopics as they say is is that they've condensed characters or they've combined characters but and although i sort of i began this probably trying to be determined not to do that. Of course, very quickly you realize why it has to be done. It's just, there are so many people to introduce and so much to explain that you, you, you can't include everybody. And so initially I thought, well, let's just keep the other brother out of it because he's not, he's not sort of, he's not part of the primary story and why introduce him if he's not needed for the story. And then I think somewhere on the line, it occurred to me less to do with authenticity and to do more with, oh, I, oh the brother represents the path that Zach could take if he didn't, if he if he went off the rails right. yeah, yeah. and he and he got depressed and he started drinking and he hit someone, maybe he'd wind up in jail as well, kind mm. of like his older brother, which is sort of what happens. And so I was, so I thought, oh well, he could be a kind of um, like a, a a ghost of Christmas future. You know, this is what could happen if Zach, you know, uh, went off the rails. And so he seemed useful. So I put him back in, but then in subsequent drafts, I put him in too much. And then yeah. you had like flashbacks with him and you had scenes of him in jail and, you know, he suddenly became this huge <laughs> character. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's now nah, that's too much. <laughs> so <laughs> then I sort of paired him back to what he ends up with in, in the film. So again, he he's in there partly because I wanted to suggest that there is a sort of darkness to this family and that mm -hmm. they're not all sweetness and light. Um, but also, like I say, that he served that role. Um, and then also finally, there was an, in I needed some kind of, independent voice to say something to Zach at the end of the movie that would let him put himself in perspective, if that makes sense. I needed, yeah, yeah. I needed some, you know, like in a romantic comedy, normally like the heroine has rejected the guy and then she sees her old grandmother and her grandmother <laughs> says something innocent, but it gets the heroine's mind thinking, right? Yeah. Uh, that is the guy I should be with. And I kind of needed that. I needed the grandmother who sort of doesn't have any investment in the story and just sort of benignly says something and it triggers something in Zach's mind. And that and the brother was able to serve that function as well. So um so yeah, so he did end up becoming like a, a an important tool in the story. And speaking of a different type of heroine, there is that amazing line in that first scene. Raya says, I don't want to be a wrestler. Her mum replies, You'll love it, the buzz. It's more addictive than Coke, crack, and heroin combined. Raya replies, have you done coke, crack, and heroin, Julia? Not combined. <laughs> yeah. Again, I wanted to sort of lay out the stall straight away. Like this yeah. is what this family is. They they've 
they're not conventional. They are edgy. They have got darkness in the path. And it's interesting you read that section out because you'll notice there's an F-bomb quite early in the script. <laughs> yeah. And I think probably in the version you read, there's a lot more bad language. And originally, yeah. it was a lot earthier in that way. And the intention, I think, was it always to be, you know, kind of slightly more adult. And it was only really late in the day that I think we realised that this was a story that was going to appeal to quite a lot of sort of teenagers, potentially, particularly teenage women, but yeah, but also teenage boys. And I think we suddenly thought, well, it seems a bit of a shame to to cut them out of the opportunity to see it, particularly in America, where they're a lot more sort of rigorous about bad language. Yeah, and yeah. so we sort of we did sort of censor it slightly um, mm. late in the day. So as the film continues, we meet older Rhea. She's already got her name. So her, her dad introduces her as Paige. But in the finished film, you restructure it a little bit and you let her find that name for herself, like a, a fair bit later on in the film. Why was that important? What there was, I, again, I don't know if it was in that draft, but there was um, a long dialogue I had for a while in which the whole family keep talking about how they've all got fake names. So it's like, you know, it's... it's um, the father saying, uh, you know, I'm Ricky Knight, although Knight's not my real name. And then he says the real last name and then Ricky's not his real name. That's his nickname. And then, and then sweet Soraya, the mother says, my name's Julia, but I go by sweet Soraya, but Soraya is actually my daughter's name, but she goes by Paige. And cause they have all these, <laughs> these fake stage names. And so there was a sort of convoluted kind of who's on first style conversation about that. Yeah. Um, and again, I always loved it, but it was just it was just too much information. Again, it was just like, this is already complicated. There's so much to explain. It, 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 do I need to explain, you know, <laughs> how, how their names are not their real names? And so it was all about just, again, thinning out, I guess, some of the weeds and letting, uh, because Paige in real life had chosen her stage name and she had based mm. it on a character from Charmed. I just thought, well, why not see that moment? rather than it already be done for her and sort of, you know, and, and um, I guess it's all part of just sort of her taking ownership of her life in, in yeah. small ways, you know? Yeah. And another element that isn't in the first draft is uh, this scene quite early on when Zach and Rhea go for a run. They end up on this park bench and they have this real kind of brother-sister moment where we see in private the kind of dynamic between them. Uh, there's also that great line, you're a knight, wrestling's in your blood, to which Rhea replies... That makes it sound like hepatitis. <laughs> did did you add that scene into later drafts because you wanted more focus on their relationship? It really does end up feeling like the heartbeat of the film. I have a feeling that either in the draft you read or again in subsequent drafts, I think the mother has that conversation mm. with Rhea. There's a conversation about Rhea has to have this wobble. She's not sure that she's going to be able to pull it off in the in the big uh, uh, tryout scene. And I'm sure there was there were versions where she had a conversation with her mother, she had a conversation with her father. And then again, you know, at some point, like you say, it was like, well, hang on, the core of this story is that the brother is the one who supports her. He's the one who sort of taught her these moves. He's the one who got in the ring with her that first time. He's the one who's going to sort of help her uh, at the end of the movie. And so, yes, of course, it should be him here who gives her this kind of pet talk. So like you say, it's, it's just kind of that, trying to double down on the on the importance of their uh, relationship the kind of um the, the closeness they have and the bond they have because that bond is going to get broken in a few scenes time mm. and so yes it was to me that the, the the whole reason this story appealed to me when i saw that documentary 
I sat down. I was not interested in wrestling. I was not expecting to enjoy it. I thought it was going to be a sort of rompy thing about people in tights, <laughs> which to some degree it was. But as soon as the brother got rejected and the sister didn't, I just thought, oh my God, this is devastating. I just thought that was yeah. such an amazing... I was not expecting that in the documentary. I was, I was kind of heartbroken for him. And I just thought, and it seemed to me that the brother, in a sense, was the beating heart of it. Hmm. And his relationship with his sister and having to watch someone else live your dream and her sort of resent that and question that. I just thought that was devastating. And so, yes, so that became very much the kind of the uh, soul of the film was their relationship. And like you say, therefore, the more I can do to kind of bond them together in the first act, the more I think heartbreaking it is when they sort of fall apart in the second act. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because we talk about this as like a Rocky story, but Rocky didn't have this like parallel storyline. So as one sibling is living out their dream, the other is kind of has had their dream taken away from them. And now they're staring at this prospect of like a future in the town where they grew up and they, you know, they, they don't have the sport they love anymore. Or they, they're not able to do it professionally. And he kind of goes on, he sort of falls into a really difficult path. I mean, that is, as you say, it's, it's pretty devastating. And um, I'm interested to hear a little bit about sort of like how you brought out the emotion in those scenes and in, and in Zach's arc. Well, I think again, in, in a, various iterations of the sort of unfinished first drafts, I think I went a lot darker with Zach. Um, Cause in real life, the brother, and he was very honest with me, he did, you know, he had a real depression, d- depressive period and he really struggled with that rejection and, and he got to some dark places. And, and a lot of that was in the original scripts and a lot more about his relationship with his wife and his kid. And, um, and again, I think in part, uh, because of sort of page count and in part because it, it started to get very bleak in a way yeah. and y- you know it, it, it sort of somehow I don't whether it unba- unbalanced the story or something but at some point I had to pull back on 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 that and so I think we still hint at it and funnily enough even in the when we did test screenings that people kept saying they were really sad for Zach and, and it's funny how <laughs> it's funny how in a test screening audience will say they're very depressed about something and even though it all ha- is all happy in the end they can't let go of how they felt earlier in the movie you know <laughs> and so when they do the test feedback at the end they go oh, i was really sad for zach and i'm in the back of the room silently thinking you're supposed to be fucking sad for zach of course you are <laughs> and so we ended up cutting out even in the editing room more and more of the sadness because we discovered that you know a little goes a long way really and so again i think in the script, we we laid into the uh, the conflict between the brother and sister, and and the and the uh, his sort of sadness and his rejection, and um, and uh, so it was always a, it was, was a really tough balance, I think, between making sure that he was kind of resentful enough that you could build to this kind of clash that they have in the wrestling ring, mm. but not so much that you lost all sympathy for him as a character. It was a very fine line. And I think, I think it's a testament to Jack who, to uh, Jack who plays him that I think you sort of on the whole retain sympathy for him, mm. even in the film, because yeah, he, he got to some dark places. It really does inject some realness into the film because I mean, 99.9% of people watching, they live Zach's character arc, not, pages right 
Well, it's funny. Again, it's a shame in a sense that the, the, the trailer for the film reveals that information that he got rejected. Because, yeah. again, in early test screenings, when they didn't know the story, audiences, you could hear them audibly gasp when he didn't get to chosen. I mean, there was a real inhale of an intake of breath and a kind of, oh, my God. I mean, I think that was not where people thought the story was going. And that mm -hmm. was kind of thrilling. But, of course, in order to sell the film, they had to sort of explain a little bit of the plot. And so they put that in the trailer. And so, again, I think, like for me, when I watched the documentary, I had no idea that was coming. And so it was a real shock. And so um, uh, I do think that's the sort of, yeah, that's the kind of emotional crux of the film there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what gives it, uh, I don't know, like you said, I, th I hope that's what gives it a little bit of an edge. And, you know, I wanted it to sort of stay humorous in, 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 and have humor where it was appropriate, but I wanted it to have this emotional punch. I was never thinking of it as a comedy. I was always just thinking of it as, as telling this story, you know, and mm. using humor where I could, but, but not sort of chasing laughs um, and letting that, that pathos land. Is that pretty typical for you? Do you try and put genre and like the idea of comedy, which inherently has this expectation of like punchlines and gags interspersed at regular intervals? Do you try and put that aside usually when you write so you can tell a story organically and then the humour, you just trust the humour to come out in it? Well, I think I, I do. And I think also in particular in this, but yes, I've never, in all of the stuff I've done, I don't think we've ever chased gags at the expense of the reality or the investment in the world i think that's always my fear is that you'll sort of you'll disengage with the story because you it feels too farcical or it feels too silly or something mm. and there were scenes and jokes we definitely cut out in this because we felt that they tipped the balance um and so yes i was never i never wrote it trying to think what's the comic angle on this scene it was always sort of what is the truth of this scene and then it, and then is there some humor to be had and um i think sometimes there are those kind of true life stories that you'll see where they've tried to, to turn them into comedies. And, and then I sometimes think they don't really work as either because they don't, they're not quite funny enough because they have to obey the rules of the real story. Yeah. yeah. But, but they're not, you don't kind of really engage because it seems a bit too silly or a bit too farcical or something. So it's a, yeah, it's a tough, tough balance that. Um, yeah. I kept thinking about movies like, um, I was thinking about films like The Fighter which is about a sort of sibling relationship Yeah. when I was working on, on this and, and other quite bleak films. And then sort of thinking, well, how could I sort of tell those stories but, but add some humour as we go? That's interesting. Soften the pill, sweeten the pill, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Which is something that you've done since The Office, really. Right. right? I mean, I would think a lot of people would think that The, the Office isn't funny. <laughs> but certainly, again, we were very scrupulous about taking out jokes where we thought that it just seemed too convenient or too, too written, too mm. sitcom-y. Um, and it's always a trick. That's always a tricky balance, you know, for what I think is subtle, someone else might think is broad, you know, it, mm. it's a constant, uh, it's just a question of taste really. And, and sometimes there are, there are things which are just too, you know, like the throwing a bowling ball in the bollocks, <laughs> you know, I mean, I saw them do things like that for real. <laughs> which is why I put it in. It, it wasn't, I didn't make it up for the movie, but of course I'm sure a lot of people think, oh, it's just a bowling ball in the bollocks. That's not subtle, but listen, that's the family. That's, the, that's wrestling. Yeah. And the the way Zach's storyline kind of wraps up, he seems to find kind of like equilibrium in, and he finds meaning in a life without fame and success that he's been chasing right up until the point where he's he's told he's let go from from the WWE that is 
But that again really reminded me of the office. It seems like that's something you're interested in, sort of like people who have to kind of like find meaning in ordinary lives and in sort of lives of kind of like just everyday small town mundane kind of existence is that fair to say well that's like goes back to what i loved about the story was that it was always zach's story really to me in in and that in a sense if you told only from Paige's perspective she 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 hardly tries she's talented naturally She's appealing. She has stagecraft, charisma. She gets chosen on her first attempt, basically. She goes to America. Yes, it's a bit difficult. And then she becomes a star. And it's like, well, that's, you know, where's the, <laughs> we've seen that story. Whereas, but the brother left behind story, mm. that somehow was what gave it something fresh. It was, it was heartbreaking. And like you say, it was, I'm always interested in those, you know, those lives of, the lives where they didn't quite plan out as you'd expected or you'd hoped. And like you say, yes, it was there in the office and it's sort of been through everything that I've done. And I think it's a, an anxiety that I have about if my life hadn't played out quite the way it had, mm. where would I be? And, but I think throughout what I've always been, what's always been important to me is that as I sincerely say in the film, you know, just because a million people aren't cheering your name, it doesn't mean your life doesn't have value. And I really believe that. And I think we do live in a world in which celebrity and fame and money is are sort of seen as markers of success. And that, and I, actually it's funny during this lockdown, you know, people clapping for the NHS, it's sort of, it's taken this for people to stand outside and applaud, you know, nurses and, and hospital porters and all these other people that are kind of unsung really in a yeah. way. And I think yeah. there is, I, I think we've always been interested in that and that and that was why it was important to me that I didn't want to portray Norwich as a slum and I didn't want to portray England as this place you have to leave and you'll never be happy in England unless you go to America I wanted it I wanted it just to be about Zach realizing the importance of the things he has at home and why they're valuable and I'd seen that just by hanging out with him and I'd seen him <laughs> training people yeah, and they worship him. They they're like he's like a little god when he walks in the room, and there's all these oddball kids from the sort of neighborhood, and these as I called them stray cats, I think, or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're called the of, strays. I they're called the strays. Yeah, because they, they, that's what I was. They were like when I saw them uh, hanging out with him. He just he was like a I don't know. He's like a sort of benign kind of um, a benign sort of uh, you know taskmaster, or whatever you know, or or, <laughs> yeah. or sergeant major. You know, he just <laughs> sort of call them to uh to attention and they'd sort of they'd do whatever he said and he was giving them discipline and he genuinely had trained a blind kid to wrestle and he'd trained another kid who was off the rails to to wrestle and so i don't know that seemed of enormous value to me and i wanted to sort of celebrate that Mm. in, in the film another thing that sort of evolved from this first draft is the kind of the other girls that raya is in competition with because in this first draft they're kind of set up as pretty mean and in the final which is like a lot more in keeping with the tradition of like the sports movie whereas in the final film you kind of really turn that that trope on its head and it's it's revealed that actually like they're all struggling in their own way and they have this camaraderie by the end of it so can you tell me a little bit about like yeah how you approach that and and why you decided to change that up well, that's a good example of why uh, research is useful, even once you've you've written the script. In the case of a true story, because obviously a lot of my initial uh, experience with the story was through the documentary and was through the family and was through Paige. Mm. And Paige's take on her experience in the WWE was that 
early on, she had felt fish out of water. She'd felt very alone. She'd felt bullied and bullied by these other women. And, and so that was the version that I put in those early drafts. And then I was actually, I was filming Logan uh, in Mississippi or somewhere or New Orleans. Yeah. And, and I had a few days off. And so I flew to uh, Florida to the WWE training center because I wanted to go there. I wanted to see it. And I wanted to meet some of the trainers that had worked with Paige. And while I was there, I said, uh, you know, to one of the trainers, oh, well, you know, of course, Paige felt very bullied. And and the woman sort of went, okay, sure. And I went, what do you mean? What, what, what's the pause? And she went, well, sometimes they felt bullied by Paige. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, well, well, tell me more. And they said, well, because she'd been wrestling since she was young. And she was, she was by the time she arrived, she sort of felt she knew everything. And so she was a little bit kind of aggressive and a bit standoffish and whatever. And and so I, that suddenly gave me a new perspective on this, that, oh, yeah, that's what happens, right? If you go to a foreign country and you are nervous and you sometimes lash out and you perhaps don't even realize you are. Mm. And that, and so then I thought, well, let me, let's play with that idea that, that you, the page, we're sort of following it through Paige's eyes. And so we assume these girls are kind of mean girls, but actually let's reveal that they're not mean girls. They're just other <laughs> women just trying to make their way in this world. And that, I don't know, it just seemed to give, um, give a different flavor to it or, or it perhaps felt more in keeping with the truth, you know, mm. uh, as it was. For Paige to win, she needs to sort of overcome this final hurdle. She has to have this phone call with Zach that I, I, I suppose when we talk about like the, the movie sort of reducing people to tears in unexpected ways, like this is one of the key moments. It's a really emotive conversation that's also funny how hard was that to construct? Well, there were a number of tricky elements um, at, in this, in that um, she sort of ends up having three mentors, right? So I guess to use the Luke Skywalker version, he has Obi-Wan Kenobi in the first one, mm. and then he has Yoda. And Yoda essentially takes the place of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. And I know Obi-Wan Kenobi occasionally pops up, but essentially one replaces the other. But in this, I sort of had three. As I had the Vince Vaughn character, who was a conflation of a number of trainers that she had in real life. And, but I also had The Rock, because The Rock we wanted to put in as, a, as I guess, an example. Of, he was supposed to sort of almost be like, um, I don't know, one of the gods stepping down from Olympus to sort of bestow, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, the, the, the kind of, I don't know, whatever it is, the golden ticket, the golden fleece or whatever <laughs> on page. <laughs> And then I also had to have her brother because her brother was so important to her story. So I, I had all these sort of mentor figures and and so I, and each of them had to sort of give useful guidance in a way. It was like I had Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda and Darth Vader and I had all these characters in one, you know, and I had to give them all plenty to do. Um, and so uh, the, the first big challenge was in reality, Dwayne Johnson had called Paige in and said tomorrow night you're going to go on Monday Night Raw. You're going to make your debut on TV, and you're going to win the title. And he told her she's going to win the title. And so that's the version that I uh, I've filmed a version with both with where he tells her that. I don't know if in the version you have it has that, but there was certainly versions of the script where he says you're going to win the title. And so the audience will watch the movie and they will know she's going to win. And and, and I, the challenge was, could you make people still care about this final fight? Yeah. Even if they knew the outcome. Mm. Because the outcome is not about whether she wins. It's about, does she get, does she win over the crowd? And does she not lose her nerve? And so uh, I was trying to lift off the idea of whether she wins or loses. So 
we had that challenge. And then we also had this challenge of sort of how can Zach give her that final piece of the jigsaw that she needs in order to triumph. And I had versions where he flew to America and he shows up in the dressing room and they speak in person. And, and in, in the end, I just went back to the reality of things, which is that they, they weren't, they, he didn't come to America and that they did speak on the phone and FaceTime and things. And that, and that was sort of uh, what we went back to. And, and we, so we get to the test screening again and we test it in front of an audience. And in the version they saw, Dwayne says, you're going to win the belt. And so they knew the outcome. And all the feedback was, we did not want to know the outcome. <laughs> yeah. We wanted to watch it and find out, you know. And yeah. so, um, so we removed it. But uh, it's, and it's, again, it's interesting because people will say, well, why do we care? It's a fake sport. Who cares if they win or lose? You've tricked us. You know, you made us care about this final match. It doesn't matter. It's not real. And I'm like, yeah, I know I tricked you. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Yeah. And as as you say, the 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 sort of success or like, you know, her her breakout her breakthrough moment in terms of her character is not actually winning the fight, but it seems to be like the speech afterwards where we've seen her earlier on in the script kind of really struggle and kind of choke when she has to kind of entertain the crowds, but here she embraces um we, we return to a line at the beginning of the film where someone calls her a freak. And she kind of like co-opts that in this speech and kind of embraces who she is. How much kind of uh, searching did you need to do to kind of find that as like the really satisfying end of the arc? Again, in various iterations of the script, the I, I literally transcribed the actual fight that Paige did. And in the actual fight, she comes on and she kind of is nervous and uh, it's sort of kind of quite theatrical and she's sort of play acting a bit. And then she... Um, she, uh, I don't, I think she gives a few words on the mic and then they have this very brief match and it's sort of over. Mm. And, and for a long time I had it as it, as it happened. And again, in, when I went to, uh, meet with Dwayne and he was working on the script with me, he, he has a team of people that he's worked with at the WWE. And one of them said, oh, I remember when that happened. And because obviously a lot of the matches are sort of pre-scripted or pre-planned by the WWE yeah. writers. And they all agreed that they'd sort of slightly, they sort of hadn't done a great job. <laughs> they wish they'd done a better job on uh, writing the match, as it were. So this was a and big budget so this way was of not, rewriting This was history. a big budget way, exactly, of doing it. And so, <laughs> um, and so the speech that Paige gave is a sort of conflation of a number of speeches that she gave on the mic at various times in her actual career. So I've pulled bits in from other... Um, from other speeches she gave where she talks about being a freak and proud of it and things like that, which is all sort of all things that, that she said at various points. And I sort of made a kind of greatest hit speech. And um, then I also let Florence, the actress worked on it a little bit and Dwayne worked on it a bit and they kind of, they kind of spitballed it a bit. And even on the day they were, they were sort of refining it a bit. Mm. Um, and originally that, that she said the speech and then had the fight. And that's like, well, that doesn't make sense because <laughs> <laughs> why are you really watching the fight if you because the speech is sort of what's important and yeah. it's all about does she win over the crowd so it needs to end with the speech and so um so there's an endless refinement of that match uh both on the day and and uh, in the weeks leading up to it in the kind of rehearsal of it and Dwayne helped block the match and also the the, the team at WWE had said that the match was also a bit underwhelming they'd had way better matches those women in in subsequent TV events, so we kind of we made the match itself better. You know, had bigger 
jumps and flips and things. <laughs> yeah. So we just, yeah, we just tried to kind of, that's certainly an area where I did depart from the reality to make it just more entertaining, basically. Yeah. But I thought I sort of somehow felt, gave myself license because because wrestling itself does that, you know? And so I sort of thought, <laughs> yeah. well, I'm allowed to kind of massage the truth a bit. Yeah. And then we end on that wonderful, like, biopic convention of the titles at the end explaining what all these characters kind of went on to do. And then the final one, you have that punchline. Dwayne Johnson went on to have a successful career outside of wrestling. Exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which is fun. Well, I just wanted to, I, I, as a fan of those sorts of movies, I always want to know what happened. Yeah. I always want to see real footage of the real people. I, I, everyone loves that. I love that. And we talked, we argued back and forth throughout this movie about what, of the conventions would we include? So for instance, for, for ages, I said, I'm not going to have a training montage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every sports movie has a training montage. I can't do that. I, I, I just, that seems crazy. It seems cliche. Yeah. And, and then as we got further and further along, we we're like, God, we need a training montage. <laughs> I really miss a training. I really want a training montage. I've got a lot of information to convey. Yeah. Um, it's just, it, you just want it. You just, as a viewer, you want yeah. it. And even if you think you don't, trust me because i did a version without you want it you want it you want to see that you want the music you want them training you want to see that it's it's why it's in all the sporting movies it's just yeah too satisfying and too enjoyable and similarly we like we can't put clips of the real family at the end that's everyone does that but the real family are so are so kind of vivid and because we had all that footage of them from the documentary and also because I just didn't think people would believe they looked like the way we'd portrayed them and that they spoke like we'd portrayed them. Yeah. And I just thought that was a way of somehow clarifying the authenticity of the story by seeing what they look like and seeing the early footage of them as kids and just, I don't know, somehow leaving, making you leave the cinema convinced that what we told you was true and not just made up. And in fact, funny enough, even though it says a true story at the top of the movie, a lot of people say, I didn't realize it was true until I saw the real family at the end so actually it it does serve a function yeah or you at least assume like a level of exaggeration but then those scenes at the at the end actually reveal oh actually there isn't a crazy amount of exaggeration there at all yeah we'd recreated the way they dress and yeah the way they speak um yeah so um it just seems like a valuable kind of coda (laughs) yeah yeah did you enjoy writing it it's like a fun film to watch was it arduous to write you mentioned there were so many abortive attempts to get this first draft together mm. um i i did enjoy it but it was it was much much harder than i'd expected and <laughs> it was hard for a number of reasons one because there was such a wealth of um stories and information that they had told me and i could have gone down a number of avenues which i did initially mm. uh, like i say about zach meeting his uh wife and about the the strays and the people that they train and their backstories and their other lives and um flashbacks with the mum and dad and how they'd met and their romance and um and various experiences Paige had in america she got sick for a moment she was in hospital you know she had all her money money stolen someone kind of fleeced her account so there were all these sort of digressions that were all juicy and and in the end what made it very hard was sort of whittling out what what couldn't be included or shouldn't be included or didn't need to be included, you know, and that was, that was what proved really tough. And I think, I think possibly if I'd written this in collaboration with someone, mm-hmm. perhaps I'd have answered those questions sooner. Cause I think when you co-write, 
you don't necessarily arrive at the final draft quicker, but you sort of, you at least cut out all the dead ends quicker. You just kind of discuss it and you go, oh, well, let's forget that, or we don't need that. And you, it's easier to sort of hammer out what you don't want to include. And I think I struggled a lot, you know, I just kept putting too much in. I mean, I'm sure there was like 200 page drafts of this. And so that was what made it arduous, was sort mm-hmm. of kind of cutting out stuff and deciding what needed to be in there. Um, and it just ended up proving, it was also just a very hard film to make, you know, the budget was relatively small. We were shooting yeah. on two coasts, you know, in the, in the US and and in the, in the UK. We had very little time to shoot the wrestling sequences. And so just, oh, it was, yeah. the whole thing was just very, very, very difficult to get made and to finish. Um, mm. And so it is pleasing that, that it's making, you know, feel good movie lists. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. There were two things that I always was worried about that I never overcame. And, and I think they probably are still problems that, that, that for a certain audience um, will always mean that they're resistant to the film. And, and they were the two things I felt when I first watched the documentary. One was I didn't want to watch a documentary about wrestling because I had no interest in wrestling. And if Dwayne hadn't sent me the documentary, I probably never would have. And I think there are, there is a portion of the audience that will never watch a movie about wrestling for that reason. And however much I explain that you don't need to like wrestling to enjoy this film, I just don't think people, some people will never be convinced. Mm. And secondly, I always wanted to change the title fighting with my family. I just never liked it as a title. <laughs> really? It sound like a good movie title. It sounded like a documentary. It sounded like, you know, the 400 pound man. It, sounded, it felt like it kind of had a bit of that sensationalism <laughs> And I kept on trying to come up with an alternative and so did the producer. And we all, we could just never come up with something better. And, and I remember at one point, one of the studios involved said, um, we've got it. We've come up with it. We know the title. Forget fighting with my family. It's called Unmatched. And I'm like, what the hell does Unmatched mean? And they're like, Unmatched, you know, she's, she's, she's unbeatable. In the-. And I said, Unmatched sounds like a sort of rom-com about dating apps. Um, and, and, and so eventually I managed to persuade them that in the absence of anything better, let's stick with fighting with my family. But I think probably there is a, there is a resistance to that title, maybe in the same way that I was resistant to it initially. And so, and it's funny because when you write, you become so used to the title that in the end you think, oh, this is fine. This is perfect. No, no, yeah. one, will, no one will have a problem with it. But I think for some people, maybe they think it sounds negative or they don't know what it means or they don't want to watch the thing about families fighting or they don't, because they're not expecting you know, the irony of what the title means. And so yeah, those were two things I, I always meant, you know, I was always worried about and I never could conquer. And I think probably, you know, if it wasn't about wrestling and it didn't have that title, maybe it would have, you know, it would have been an even bigger success. So, you know, but those are the, those are the breaks. <laughs> are there lessons that you, you learned writing this that you've carried forward into into writing since? Well, I, one of the things which I've always had a problem with and I still struggle with is I think I have a tendency to over-explain. I, I'm very anxious about the audience understanding and keeping, because I'm worried that if, if I lose you, if you don't understand why someone's doing something or if I hadn't bedded in why something's important, I'm worried that I'll have... Uh, the, the the movie won't work or the project won't work, you know? And so I, t- I tend to say three times what I could have said once. Yeah. And then in the editing room, once I've filmed the film, then I can go back and cut them out. And um, 
And so, for instance, in this film, I've told you all about all those kind of levels of exposition, but I was, like I say, I was obsessed with, would you think Paige wanted to be the heavyweight champion of the world? Or did you think she was only doing it for her family? And I was obsessed with this. And so I had, I had footage of her as a young girl holding up this fake cardboard bell and, and talking about how much she wanted to be the champion. And I had scenes which I shot of her watching those old home movies of her with the bell and constantly trying to reiterate, trust me, she wants this. So when she wins <laughs> at the end, it means something to her, please trying to shake the audience by the lapels, you know? Yeah. And, um, and of course, again, once you're in the test screenings or with showing it to friends and family, you realize you don't need that. Yeah. People understood. They got it. They didn't need to be at this point to be labored. But I think what's hard in the writing process is, is sort of trusting yourself that you've made your point, you know? Um, and I don't know why that is. I think it's just because you're writing for the page. And so I think because you're writing for a reader, you, once she's brought to life by actors, the actor's face will tell you so much. And, and you see Jack Loudon looking upset. You believe he's upset. You don't need him to say, I'm upset. Yeah. And you don't need Florence Pugh to say, I want this dream. She will do that for you. But I think as a, you know, on the written page, somehow you feel the need to explain that more. And often that's in dialogue. And that dialogue is the first thing that gets cut out <laughs> in the room. And so I think, I don't think I've quite reconciled that, but I think now I write one script, if you like, for the reader, knowing that what we'll put on the screen will be different. Yeah. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Did you also learn, um, or did it underline to you the value of looking for stories in, in unexpected places? Because you mentioned that you would have never watched this documentary or come across this story if it hadn't been sent to you by The Rock. Um, and, in, and in a way, it's interesting because you started your career, you and Ricky Gervais, writing about what you know and writing about, yeah, and this is like the complete other end of the spectrum. It's writing about something you have no idea about at the beginning of the process. So is that something, you know, did you, did you kind of like come to any conclusions about looking for stories in unexpected places? Well, one of the things I delight in is the fact that people in writing about the film say it's an unlikely mix of things. Me, The Rock, WWE, you know, it, it, it is an unlikely mix of things. But like you say, that's exactly the reason to do it yeah. was it did feel uh, it's very hard to find something that feels cinematic I, by which I mean a, a small story that feels cinematic yeah. that isn't about superheroes or, or dinosaurs because I think we in an age now in which you know there's so much great uh, movie content on TV made for Netflix or Amazon and so on that to sort of have something that's in, in the theatres uh, as they say in America in the cinema itself is it's quite hard to find something that has a bit of scale to the story. And I think sports movies are one of the few things that do in a way have that because they have stadiums and they have sort of physical contact. And so you don't have to have guns and explosions, but you still have a, a physicality. There's something cinematic about the clashing of bodies, you know, in a ring. And I think, and I thought, I to, so that was something that I felt this had was it sort of felt it was a small movie and it was a British movie, but it had something cinematic in it and it had, some scale so that so you're right in that sense it definitely it, i i want to look for sort of things that that feel unique in that way and a bit different but i think despite that on the surface it feels um not the obvious fit for me mm -hmm. what it has is is like you say so many of the things which i've explored in the past and which i'm interested in you know lives of quiet desperation lives um 
that perhaps could have played out in a different way. Um, it's about kind of working class people who have a dream and go to America and sort of make that dream come true, which is something I feel to some degree I've done. Yeah. Um, and so I felt a great affinity with, with Paige and the brother in that regard. And I felt at a kinship with the family in a way. I mean, yes, my family aren't quite as sort of fruity and earthy as that. And they, aren't, <laughs> they haven't been in jail and stuff, but they do, they, we do trade in humor and we give each other shit, you know, and we yeah. are sort of self mocking in some way. And so I just, I, there was a lot of elements in this story that I connected with. Um, and I don't know that that was what I sort of wanted to try and convey to the audience was sort of my, my uh, sort of appreciation of this woman's journey. Mm. And also I just, I don't think I even realized it straight away, but you realize as well that there's not a lot of stories about working class women from the UK who, who have sort of global success. You, yeah. you see quite a lot of yeah. stories about sort of privileged English women, you yeah. know, whether it's, I don't know, Virginia Woolf or someone, but the idea of like a kind of gritty working class woman who, and again, yes, we tell those stories, but they tend to be about, you know, quite depressing, gritty, realistic stories about how hard it is to, to live in a council house. Mm. Um, but the sort of idea of that, of a, of, a, of a little bit of Mike Lee, but, but with a little bit of Rocky thrown in seemed quite an unlikely, uh, an unfamiliar combination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Especially if she doesn't tone down any of those kind of like working class British. Yeah, that's right. In fact, if anything, the makeover is the one thing she shouldn't have done. Yeah. Whereas normally, you know, the idea is, yeah, you have to sort of refine yourself in order to, to get acceptance. Mm. Awesome. Well, Stephen, before we go, can I just ask, like, this has been, this film was a huge success. And as we talked about at the beginning, people are still finding this film and, and enjoying this film. With fighting with my family behind you, kind of, what's next for you? What have you been working on and where will we see your writing talents next? Well, I've been working on a TV project, which I've um, been gestating for a long time, which is something I actually started filming. And then two weeks into filming, we had to oh, shut God. down, obviously, because no. of the lockdown, like everybody else. So um, this was a project that I originated with a, again, you're mentioning about kind of finding unlikely uh, stories, or in this case, unlikely collaborators. And if, if me and The Rock is not the obvious partnership, then me and this guy, Elgin James, aren't, because Elgin was a reformed uh Boston punk gang member who used to extort money from neo-Nazis and give it to Jewish organizations and went to jail for a year. Um, and now he's a, a TV writer, a screenwriter in, in the States. And I had asked to be paired up with someone who just couldn't be further from me because I had this sort of vague idea about people doing community service. My parents had um, in Bristol when I was growing up, they used to supervise people doing community service. You know, when you, you get like a drink driving charge or, or some minor petty theft and you, instead of sending you to prison, they make you paint a fence in a park or pick up rubbish at the side of the street. Yeah. My parents used to be involved with that. And I always thought that was an interesting way of bringing unlikely groups of people together because, um, you know, you could have a, a school teacher doing it and you could have a 16 year old, you know, drug dealer. And I always thought that was an interesting combination of people. And so Elgin, and I collaborated on this and we kind of turned it into a TV show. And so that's what I have been making. Um, but unfortunately, like I say, it got shut down. So we're now just sort of in limbo trying to figure out when we can resume. Yeah. yeah. And has, has that got a name and, and where can we see it? Well, it was called or is called The Offenders. But again, I suspect that title will change to Unmatched. <laughs> um, Unmatched is almost a title you could apply to almost any film, I've yeah, realised. Yeah. Um, 
Yes, no, it's called The Offenders, but I think there is a TV show called The Young Offenders, so we may have to change it. But yeah. it's with BBC and with Amazon at the moment, and it's a sort of co pro with them. So uh, we've been working on that, and um, I'm taking lockdown as an opportunity to kind of refine the script and things. But um, yeah, so that's what I've been working on. And, and then I'm just looking, I'm looking for another film project. But as I said, it's very hard to find something that, that feels both cinematic and also... Um, that you want to sort of spend two or three of your years of your life on because that's mm. inevitably how long films take. And so, yeah, it's just trying to find the right idea or come up with the right idea. Yeah. Well, Stephen, this has been fascinating. I can't wait for uh, The Offenders or Unmatched, as it might be called. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Fighting With My Family is on Netflix in the UK. And where can people find it in the US, Stephen? I think it's on Hulu maybe. And obviously, you know, you can VOD it, various outlets. Uh, and probably even buy it on old school DVD if you want. Yeah. Although I'm just realizing I'm recommending this film as if we haven't just spent an hour spoiling every single element of it. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. You might want to put that up front, spoilers yeah. on the way. <laughs> there we go. All right. Well, thanks so much, Stephen. Uh, this has been Script Apart. We'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Script Apart with me, Al Horner, produced by Camel Demek, with music by Stefan Bidley Taylor. Get in touch by emailing us at the script apart podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.